Go and find Romans chapter 3 with me. Romans chapter 3. Welcome to our monthly Q&A night. We actually missed a month last month. I think, uh, honestly, I don't. so much has happened since then. I don't even remember exactly why. Just sort of a schedule crunch with being gone and stuff. So we're going to pick it up uh, with, without interruption, hopefully, from here on. So here's our question. I want to consider this afternoon. Can you do a word study on the word propitiation? So last Q&A night, we had a question asking us to, on a, to do a word study on a word we use very often, Christ. And today our question asks us to do a word study on a word we hardly ever use. Definitely in our everyday life, and even in church, it's not an altogether common word, and that is propitiation. Now one thing I always try to do in Q&A night, hopefully you know this, is I always try to take your questions very, very seriously. Um, and in this case, this means I'm not just going to look up the word in a dictionary and splat that up on the screen and say, there you go. We're going to really, uh, really take it seriously. So our study this evening has really three parts. Number one, we're going to delve into uh, the definition of the word English and, uh, and Greek. We're going to talk about its roots. We're going to talk about related words and its overall usage. That's the first part, the uh, definition and usage. Second, we're going to look in some detail at the major passages in the New Testament which use this word. in in which propitiation is a major theme. And then number three, we're going to try to tie together what we've studied with some overarching observations and see what all we studied teaches us about God and our relationship with Him. So to begin with, let's think about the definition and usage. Let's just start out in English to make it easy. Our English word propitiation means to appease or pacify the anger of another. You look it up in a dictionary, that's what propitiation means. And I think it's a concept that I think it's easy enough to grasp. So just imagine that I did something that made you very, very angry at me. Uh, let's hope we never come to that. But if I did that and you were angry with me, and were I to realize the error of my ways and want to do everything in my power to try to restore the relationship, I might engage in acts of propitiation. I would confess the wrong that I had done to you. I would apologize to you. I might even give you a gift in order to appease your anger and restore the relationship. And so a husband who wants to stop sleeping in the doghouse might bring home flowers. We could call that a propitiatory offering. That would be a perfectly right thing to call that, a propitiatory offering. Something given in order to try to pacify his wife's anger. If she accepted the gift, we could rightly say propitiation was made. And to use another English-related English word, we could also say that she now has, if she accepts the offer and relationship is restored, we could now say she has a propitious disposition, a propitious disposition toward him. Her anger has abated. She shows him mercy. She gives him forgiveness. And now the relationship is whole again, whereas before it was broken and there was, there was, a, there was righteous indignation. So that's the English word. And that English usage jives with how the word is used, I think, overall in the Bible. Um, There are a few related Greek words that all come from the same root. I'm just going to throw up that root word, and that is helios, which means friendly, gracious, or favorable. That's what that root word means. And so in in the Greek New Testament, there's a verb form uh, of this word which describes the solicitation of someone's favor who might be angry. There's a noun form which describes atoning sacrifices. Um, These are offerings to God which are meant to solicit God's grace and favor where there might be 
a, a wrath. There might be a separation because of my sin. And so a propitiation is offered, meant to solicit God's grace and favor. Now, interestingly, in the Septuagint, so remind you, the Septuagint, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and a couple centuries before Jesus' time, there is a, a, a momentous translation of the Hebrew Old Testament made into Greek. That's called the Septuagint. And in that Greek translation of the Old Testament, the term for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the blood was sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, usually we call it the mercy seat, it actually uses this word. Literally, in the Septuagint, it's called the propitiation seat. It's the place where God's favor is sought, that that his mercy and favor would overcome any wrath Israel deserves. The sacrifice is made and the blood is sprinkled, that propitiation might be made before God. Now, just to, just to get into the weeds a little bit to let you know all the things people talk about, in some translations, um, the word in this Helios family are translated atonement. Atonement is a very related concept. And as you wade into the back and forth of scholars about translation and stuff, they will often argue about which is the better word, propitiation or atonement, to just muddy the waters a little bit more. Some say expiation is an even better word. Expiation means to cover with mercy. But as far as I can tell, it just doesn't make a whole lot of difference. So word on atonement. Atonement is from the Old English word one-ment. In Old English, there's a word called one-ment, meaning to unite, to attain a state of at-one-ness, of one-ment. So atonement is, is one of the chief ways the New Testament describes what happened on the cross. Sinful man can be made one again with a holy God. And I think this basically shoots us out at the same place that propitiation does. I think atonement puts a little more focus on the restored state that's achieved, whereas propitiation puts a little more focus on the broken state that's been fixed. But, but both words get across the same idea. There's a relationship that's broken. There is one party who has every right to be angry, but something happens that makes possible a restoration. And that something is propitiation which is made. And then when propitiation is made, the state of atonement, of at-oneness, is achieved. I hope that makes some sense. Now, we're going to drill down in a minute on the major texts in the New Testament which employ this word, especially in describing the work of Jesus. But just a few small examples of this idea in the Bible that help drive home the concept. I'm going to throw these up on the screen so you don't have to turn all these. So... You remember years after Jacob had tricked Esau out of his birthright and his blessing, and after Esau had threatened to kill Jacob if he ever saw him again, uh, there's a scene where Jacob, with his whole family now, has to pass through Esau's territory. Do you remember that scene? And uh, Jacob is very worried for the safety of himself and his family, and so he sets up this elaborate parade to go before him to greet Esau, full of gifts to go before him into Esau's house, And I want you to see what Jacob's concern is. This is Genesis 32 and verse 20. He says that I may appease him. That's that word in the family of words. The Septuagint has that Helios root here. That I may appease him or propitiate him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face and perhaps he will accept me. And so a propitiatory gift is offered to appease the wrath of Esau. And when Esau ends up hugging his brother... With tears in his eyes, it is clear propitiation was in fact made. A gift was given which averted the wrath of his brother. Do you see the idea there at work in a real life situation? Here's a proverb that uses the concept and the word. 
A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it, or we could easily say propitiates it. So a king's power was absolute uh, in a monarchy. He could have your head cut off with a snap of a finger if his mood was foul enough. And so a wise man knows how important it is to appease a king's anger, to propitiate his anger if he wants to live. And so there's a proverb using this concept. There are also a number of stories in the wilderness wandering period which illustrate the propitiation of God's anger. So in Exodus 32, after Israel worshipped the golden calf while still in the shadow of Mount Sinai, Moses tells the people he's going to go back to the mountain, go back to Mount Sinai for this reason. He says, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That's the word. That's the idea. Perhaps I can make propitiation for your sin, he could have said. So God is angry, and Moses is about to go appeal to God to change his disposition toward Israel from anger and wrath to grace and forgiveness. So there's the idea. And then one more here. This is after the rebellion of Korah in Numbers, uh, God sends a plague on Israel uh, until Aaron goes to fetch his censer from the altar and uh, and do this. He says, take a censer, put fire on it from the altar, lay incense on it, carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So you see the connection between wrath and atonement or propitiation. God's wrath has been stoked by what has happened. And so Aaron takes action to propitiate that wrath so that the at one state can be regained instead of this broken, divided state. Now, one more thing I'm going to throw in here before we go any further, and we're going to pick up this thread later. Um, Ancient paganism, what we know about ancient paganism is rife with propitiatory sacrifices. Ancient paganism is rife with propitiatory sacrifices. The pagan worshipers of Greece, Assyria, uh, Babylon, Persia, um, Canaan, Greece... The pagan worshippers in all these religions were always afraid of making the gods angry. And for good reason. The character of those gods as portrayed in their myths were that they often just flew off the handle with very little provocation. And so as a regular course, the pagan worshipper made propitiatory sacrifices or would undergo propitiatory sort of magic rituals to try to appease any divine anger that might be out there. You're always a little bit worried that the gods might be mad at you for some reason, valid or not, And so they would make propitiatory offerings. It's a word that is often used in ancient pagan texts. The gods might be mad at us. We have to do something so that they will not be mad at us and make propitiation. We'll pick up that thread a little bit later. So now let's go to the second part of our study, and let's think about the texts which really hit on this theme in a major way. This is Romans 3. So Romans 3 is really the pivot point of the letter of Romans, or a major one. In the beginning of this chapter, we're driven to the lowest and most depressing realizations about ourselves, about our lostness, and about our total inability to do anything about our lostness. As he says in chapter 3 and verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one, and that includes us. But beginning in verse 21, Paul throws the whole thing in reverse. He says our sinfulness and law-breaking is not the end of the story. God has another way to save people that doesn't depend on our ability to be perfect law keepers who never mess up. We failed at that, and there's no going back and and recapturing that. But God has another way that we could be made righteous. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the first thing he says in this text is that law is good at pointing out sin and condemning it and those who commit it. That's one thing law is very good at. But what law is not good at is justifying sinners and making unrighteous people righteous. The law code can tell you all the ways in which you're wrong, but the law code cannot make you right. It can only tell you how wrong you are. This is even true, he says, of the law of Moses, which is a perfectly good law. It came from God, after all. Of course it's good. And yet, even that law could only show Israel how unrighteous they were. It could not fix their unrighteousness. And so in answer to that quandary, in comes Jesus, whom, verse 25, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So he is calling here Jesus a propitiation by his blood. He is calling him a wrath-removing or wrath-averting sacrifice. That Jesus and his blood are the means of redeeming and healing this broken law and our broken relationship with God. Jesus and his propitiatory sacrifice is how this brokenness gets fixed. And the reason Jesus has to be this wrath-averting sacrifice, how this works in verse 26 is to show God's righteousness at the present time that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, just to talk a little bit about this. Those ideas of just and justifier really stand in tension with one another. Just is the idea of being utterly fair, giving everyone what they deserve at all times. To justify hits at the idea of forgiveness, of absolving guilt. And they stand in tension with one another, don't they? Think about what God would be like if he were all just and none justifier, or all justifier and not at all just. So if God were merely just, that would look like him sort of standing with his hands on his hips, dispensing cold hard justice to everyone who ever crossed his path. Judgment day would would, would amount to uh, God looking at our sin tally, and based on that, consigning every last sinner to the second death. An altogether just God with no justification, that's what Judgment Day looks like. It looks like wrath, wrath, wrath. You know, pure justice seems like a good idea until you read Romans 1, 2, and 3 and realize what that really means for you and me on Judgment Day. We would not want a God who was just, perfectly just, and not a justifier. So people who think that God is just but not justifier... If we had a God like that, we would probably say, you know, he's heartless, he's condemning, he's unloving. It's logical, but there's no hope. But on the other hand, if God were merely justifier and not just, he would sort of be like a nice old grandpa in the sky who gave the grandkids ice cream no matter how bad they were. And you say, well, that doesn't sound so bad. But just think about what that means. It means sin is inconsequential. Sin goes unpunished. It means the suffering of innocent people means nothing to God. It means murderers and child abusers and rapists and tyrants get off the hook because God's just sort of a big old softy. It means God pronounces guilty people innocent. What would you say about that God? You would say he doesn't care about suffering. 
He doesn't care about sin. He isn't holy. He doesn't care about right and wrong. And he'd be right if you said that about him. He's not just. And so God's answer to this dilemma is not to choose whether he's all just or all justifier. His answer to this dilemma is to put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. It means Jesus pays the penalty for sin. It means the demands of justice are satisfied because a sacrifice has been made and the blood is sprinkled on the propitiation seat. Sin gets dealt with. Sin is treated as seriously as it in fact is and it is answered for and that we can be justified at the same time. This combination of just and justifier strikes an amazing balance. God is both equitable and graceful. God is both fair and forgiving. He can forgive sin without compromising His perfect holiness. And so propitiation says, sin is horrible and sin must be punished. While at the same time, saving us from the punishment. The cost for our sin is paid by Jesus instead of by ourselves. So that's what Paul's up to in Romans chapter 3. Jesus acts as our propitiatory sacrifice. Here's the next, uh, next text. There's four of these in total. This is 1 John 2 and verse 1. 1 John 2 and verse 1. So John has been writing uh, in the previous chapter to a group of people who have sort of a strange and diverse group of relationships to their sin. Read, read 1 John 1 and see... Imagine the the kinds of things they must have been saying. Uh, There's some people who apparently basically said, we have no sin, right? We're perfect. We have no need of God and his forgiveness. That's one extreme, while others, on the other hand, it seems, were plagued by sort of an unending guilt over their sin that threatened to derail their whole walk with God. You couldn't get two more extremes than that. People who said, I have no sin, and people who said, my sin is so great uh, that there's just no hope for me. And so what John is doing here is trying to balance these two ideas in our heads about sin. Number one, that we never think lightly of sin. But number two, that we not be paralyzed by guilt and despair over our sin. And it's quite delicate balance. This is uh, 1 John 2 and verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So number one, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I think he's, he, he's writing to a person who might read 1 John 1 and verse 9. Look at 1, 9 here. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Imagine a person who read that and concluded, well, I guess what that means is I can just go ahead and keep sinning. After all, we'll just ask for forgiveness later. We'll just go press the forgiveness button and God will forgive us. After all, that's his job, isn't it? If that's what you conclude, you have totally twisted God's word and his intentions. In 2.1, he says the object is to avoid sin. Similar thing is said by Paul in Romans 6 when he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Both Paul and John say, Shame on us if we cheapen God's grace, if we use God's grace as a license to sin, treating it like that. What chapter 2 and verse 2 remind us is that Jesus had to die in order to make this forgiveness we can solicit possible. And if that's what we remember, how dare we treat Jesus' sacrifice like that? Our sin killed Jesus. 
That doesn't mean we do more sin. That means we do everything we can to avoid sin. And so John says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But, first, uh, the second half of verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So you've got one extreme. I do what I want. I sin how much I want with impunity. But the other extreme is after we have sinned, to be so filled with guilt and despair that we sink into such a depression that we consign ourselves to hell and we flagellate ourselves because we're terrible and we say there is no hope for me. John says, grieve over your sin. Be ashamed, yes. But then bring it to God in humble and penitent confession. That's really what he's getting at in chapter 1 and verse 9. Knowing as you bring that before God, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ. He is on our side. He wants to forgive our sin. He died for the sins of the world, verse 2. The fact that we are sinners is not news to him. Provisions have been made for our forgiveness. And central to this is the fact that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, verse 2. Jesus is the sacrifice that averts God's righteous wrath and makes possible our entire reconciliation with God. Jesus died in order to facilitate this. Remember that. And number one, you can never take sin lightly and presume on God's grace. Jesus had to die to free me from sin, which means I want to die to sin too. Remember that in number one, you can't take sin lightly. But also remember that in number two, you will never lose all hope if you stumble. Because Jesus paid the price, and God longs to forgive us. Sinners need to know Jesus died for them and that they can be forgiven. And then forgiven sinners need to know that this is not a reason to go on sinning. What everyone needs to remember, central to this balance, is that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. It helps us never take our sin lightly and it helps us never lose hope after we have sinned. So that's 1 John 2, an important propitiation passage. This is uh, later on in the same book. 1 John 4 So verse 7, this is uh, central to the the letter, is the admonition to love one another. John is always telling his readers to love their brethren. But what John really drives home here is that this is no flowery sentiment. We just have the warm fuzzies toward one another. This is really built on deep truths about the character and the work of God. God's love is the model for our love. And God's love is no flowery sentiment. God's love is is meaty and and muscle-bound. This is... 1 John 4 and verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So what John wants us to see is how God's love plays itself out in real life. And so he says, he just said this in 3.18, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Well, how did God love? Not just in word and talk, but in deed and truth. What does that look like for God? Well, it looks like this, In in, in chapter 4 and verse 9, God sent his son into the world, his only son. 
Jesus came and died so that we might live through him. It's a concrete, historical revelation of God's love. It shows us that love is self-sacrifice. Love is seeking the seeking of another's good at the cost of oneself. God sent his son to die that we might live. This is love acted out in history. And in verse 10, John clarifies that God sending his son was an act of grace. It was not an act of merit. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. In other words, God did not send Jesus because he said to himself, you know those people on earth are doing such a great job, I think I want to send Jesus as a reward for their good behavior. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. He saw us wallowing in our sin. He saw us hating one another and being hated by others. He saw us unable to dig ourselves out of our own grave and seeing us in that state, he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here is something interesting to notice about propitiation. In the pagan world, it's the worshiper of the gods who is always obsessed with making propitiation. Because the gods were up there, they're probably offended, they might be in a sour mood, they're waiting for something from the worshiper to change their disposition. Zeus is mad, he's just waiting there with his arms crossed, waiting for someone to make a good enough sacrifice to make him feel better. But here, it is not us who make the propitiatory sacrifice. It is God who sends his son to be, to be the propitiation for our sins. More on this inversion later. But I want you to see this is really central to the Bible's idea of propitiation, that it is God who offers it. It is God who offers the propitiatory sacrifice. Finally, number four, this is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. So the Hebrew epistle is written to a group of Jewish Christians who upon converting to Christ are beginning for the first time to experience opposition for their faith. Um, you know, when, when they were Jews, when people were Jews, of course they didn't feel at home in, in Rome, under, under Rome's thumb. There were aliens in that sense. But at least, if you're a Jew, you have sort of a subculture, a rich subculture to belong to. Your family, your tradition, your synagogue, you, you had a place to belong if you were a Jew. The problem is, now that some of these Jews have become Christians, they've even become outcasts, not just from Rome, but also their own subculture from which they derive so much meaning. They have almost nothing, it seems. What the Hebrew writer is encouraging them and showing them is that to revert back to the comfortable old Jew of Judaism is simply not a viable option, not if you've seen Jesus. Because Judaism was always a shadow being cast by Jesus, and Jesus is the substance that the shadow is just, a, is just an image of. Jesus is the substance. And he is speaking here about Jesus' fulfillment of the high priestly role for God's people today. To turn your back on Jesus is to turn your back on the one true high priest. This is uh, Hebrews 2 and verse... Uh, did I put the wrong... Yeah, Hebrews 2. It should say Hebrews 2 and verse 14. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil... And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so in Jesus, the Hebrew writer says, God became like us, and that fact uniquely qualifies Jesus to be our high priest. So the job of a high priest was basically to stand with one foot in heaven and one foot on earth, to bring back together God and his people, to intercede on the people's behalf before God. The high priest ministered before God and he ministered before humanity. But of course in the Old Testament it is always a, a human clumsily entering into God's presence and just once a year, which the Hebrew writer makes a lot of. The high priest only comes before God the most holy place once a year. But in Jesus, he says, it's not a human clumsily going into God's presence. In Jesus, it's now God who has come into our presence with all the holiness of heaven, but also now the empathy of knowing temptation on earth. And in filling that high priestly role, one thing Jesus does in his faithful servants, this is Hebrews 2.13, is to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So here's something interesting I want you to notice. So in the first John passages and in Romans 3, it is Jesus... It is Jesus who is put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So in Romans 3, the picture is of Jesus being the propitiatory sacrifice. Jesus is the lamb being sacrificed. It's his blood being spilled in order to make propitiation between us and God. Jesus is the animal in Romans 3, laid on the altar to atone for our sins. But in Hebrews 2, Jesus isn't being the propitiation, but rather he is making propitiation. Jesus is now pictured as the priest offering the sacrifice. Does that make sense? In Romans 3, he's the animal. In Hebrews 2, he's the priest. Both Paul and the Hebrew writer know what they're doing. The work of Jesus is so complete that not only is is he the sacrifice, he is also the priest. At every stage of the process of bringing together God and sinful mankind, Jesus is absolutely central. That's what the Hebrew writer is saying. His point is, to turn your back on Jesus is to turn your back on the worker of propitiation at every stage of the process. To turn your back on Jesus is to turn your back on the bringer together of God and man, the ultimate propitiator. That's Jesus, sacrifice and priest. So, we've said a lot of things. Let's try to wrap it up with a few, uh, few points for home. Number one, what did we learn from our study? Here's the first thing I want you to take home. Sin arouses the righteous wrath of God. Sin arouses the righteous wrath of God. There's always a big obstacle when describing certain attributes and emotions of God. <clears throat> Jealousy is one. Wrath is another. Um, the big obstacle is to imagine, when, when we imagine God embodying this, that we sort of transport all of our baggage in that idea, onto God. Um, Anthropomorphism is the technical way of describing it. But just think of it. You know, when we're angry, it's almost always a problem. Our anger is often roused simply because our pride has been hurt, uh, because we didn't get our way. And when we express our anger, when we give vent to our anger, it's nearly always tainted with sin. We express our anger in sinful ways. We say things that aren't true when we're angry. We say things that are malicious and bringing up past baggage and calculated to hurt someone, our anger is almost always a disaster. But God is not like us. God doesn't fly off the handle at the most trivial provocation. That's what the pagan gods did, but God's not like that. God doesn't lose his temper for no reason. 
God doesn't do things in his anger that he later regrets like we do. God's wrath always acts in concert with his holiness and with his righteousness and even acts in concert with his love. God is never malicious. God is never spiteful. God is not vindictive. He cannot be any of those things. God's anger is never irrational. In fact, God's anger is always perfectly rational, just as it is perfectly holy and predictable. Here's the underlying thing. God always and God only becomes angry about sin and evil. That's always the reason God gets angry in the Bible, sin and evil. One man put it this way. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. In short, God's anger is pulls apart from ours. What produces our anger, injured vanity, never produces his anger. And what produces his anger, evil and sin, seldom provokes our anger. So at the root of the idea of propitiation, this gift to appease the wrath of someone, of course at the root of that is the wrath. The fact that evil and sin anger God. That's why propitiation is necessary. And what I want to say to you is, we should be grateful that God is wrathful against sin. We should be grateful of that fact. I know it's not the most pleasant thing in the world to think about the wrath of God, but I want you to consider with me the alternative. Would we be happier if God was not bothered by sin? Would we would be happier about that? Would we rather God found it funny or enjoy when innocent children were abused? Would we rather God be that way towards sin? Or would we rather God be wrathful at that sin? Would we rather God witness the suffering of people trying to serve him and that he just shrug it off? Or would we rather God be angry and indignant about the suffering of his innocent people? How's God supposed to feel when he sees sin ruin the good world that he made? How's God supposed to feel when he sees the devil drawing people away from the God who made them and drawing them toward eternal destruction? How would you like God to feel about that? Propitiation reminds us that sin arouses the righteous wrath of God as well it should. Number two. Jesus died in order to be our propitiation. I want you to ask, me to, uh, ask you to turn to Romans 5 very quickly. Romans 5. I'm not going to belabor this point because that's essentially what all the passages we looked at say. Passages in Romans and 1 John especially. Jesus died as our propitiation. I just want to look in Romans 5 and verse 6. Um, it doesn't use the word propitiation, but I think it drives home the idea nicely. This is Romans 5 and verse 6. Romans 5 and verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's the wrath idea. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. See, Paul is getting personal with this idea of God's wrath. God isn't just wrathful at sin in the abstract. God isn't just wrathful at other people's sin. God is wrathful toward my sin. But God doesn't stop at wrath toward sin. And he doesn't even wait to see what we'll do before we can propitiate his anger. He doesn't wait on us to make the first move. Actually, it's God who makes the first move. While we were still sinners, he says, 
before any of us ever did a single thing for God, before any of us were even born, God made a move toward propitiation, the crucial move. He made the move toward atonement. Christ died for us. He spilled his blood for us so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. And so the cross was the place where Jesus endured the wrath of God so that us, enemies of God, could be made friends with him. Jesus provides the blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat, the propitiation seat, for the atonement of our sins. Jesus' death turns away God's wrath from sinners like you and me, a wrath that we deserve so that we could be friends with God. Jesus died to be our propitiation. Third and finally, biblical propitiation inverts the pagan conception of propitiation. This is really the the real revelation to me in this study. The history of religion is filled with efforts and worries of, of worshipers about how to propitiate the anger of the gods. One man said, human propitiatory acts saturate the history of religions. In other words, one way to understand the history of ancient religion is to think about propitiation. That's a lot of what they're doing in their worship. You know, humanity has always been aware, number one, that there are deities higher than us. The pagans thought this in clumsy ways, but they did think that. It's really our generation that's the, that's the departure when more and more it's common to think there is no higher deity. But humanity has always been aware there are higher deities than us. Um, and so they, they have always been concerned with how to facilitate a relationship with those deities. They have even been aware that they might have guilt that needs to be dealt with before these deities. And so for centuries in the history of religion, they're committing propitiatory acts to remove their guilt and to assuage the anger of their gods. They underwent rituals. They made sacrifices. They fasted. They prayed. Sometimes they, 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 uh, they took hallucinogens. They did all sorts of crazy things. They danced. They cut themselves. They flagellate themselves. All acts of propitiation, trying to propitiate the gods. One of the many revolutions of the Bible is, is that it is not us who make the first move toward propitiation, but rather God. I'll read you a paragraph that uh, really brought this home to me. In Christianity, it is not humans who come to God with a compensatory gift, but rather God who comes to humanity in self-giving in order to overcome the divine human alienation. It is not that human beings conciliate God, but that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.19. God does not passively wait to be reconciled, but actively goes out and humbly suffers for sinners to reconcile them. God does not wait for humanity to approach, but approaches humanity. The saving event is not about God receiving our gifts, but God giving his own gift, his son, in order to offer to us the benefit of salvation. In Christianity, it is God who sacrifices not humanity. And so I think the last and most important thing we need to say about propitiation is the utterly radical twist Christianity puts on the concept. Please do away, purge your mind with the idea that God is up there in in heaven, angry at us with his arms crossed, waiting for us to approach him with a good enough sacrifice. That's not Christianity. That's paganism. That's that's the works-based salvation of paganism. No, in the Bible, it is God who takes the first step. While we were still sinners, Paul says, God is the one who makes the propitiatory sacrifice. 
he answers his own wrath against sin with his own self-giving love. And what he does is simply invite us to come accept his gift that he is trying to give us so that there can once again be helios between us and God, so that there can be grace and favor and pleasure instead of wrath and anger. So for the person who asked this question, uh, this loomed over me for quite some time. It's a big concept, but it's been a, a lot of good for me to read and study about this, and I hope it's been good for you too. So we offer the invitation at the end of our services. We do that because perhaps there's someone that has not realized the links to which God has gone to, to reconcile the world to himself and to reconcile you to himself. If you have some unaddressed sin in your life, if you have not given yourself to God in the first place, please come see what God has first done to make this reconciliation possible. Propitiation has been made. The blood of Christ has been poured out so that we can come be in relationship with God. If you need to come solicit his favor, do it now as we stand and sing.